Well, here we are at the 12th and final episode of the year. I recorded the first episode in Jerusalem 12 months ago while I was attending an animation festival with Loving Vincent. 12 months on and I'm sitting in another hotel, this time in Yerevan, Armenia, where I am attending the Re-Animania Animation and Comics Festival. I stated that the Jerusalem trip would be my last with Loving Vincent, as by then I'd already visited 27 festivals in 12 countries over 10 months and it was time to move on to working on our new films. However, I couldn't resist the opportunity to visit Armenia for the first time. From my study of history, I am somewhat familiar with the tragic events of the Armenian Genocide committed by the Turks and the Kurds in 1916, and the sad history that led up to those events. So I was curious to find out how the mountainous little Christian nation of Armenia, bordering the great hostile Islamic nation of Turkey and the small hostile Islamic nation of Azerbaijan and flanked to the south by the Islamic behemoth Iran and still within the orbit of Putin's Russia is faring. I'm at the end of a wonderful four day trip here. The landscape, the culture and the people have been fascinating and charming in equal measure. I highly recommend anyone who can to visit this wonderful little country. Two years ago, they had a peaceful revolution here where half the country assembled in the capital and insisted that the oligarchy that had entrenched itself since the fall of the Soviet Union stepped down. And since then, there has been the start of economic growth and a welcome decline in corruption. I wish the country all the best and hope it can prosper despite being a tiny nation surrounded by hostile forces. My first story, a year ago, was about a young Hitler dripping in rage and hate at the defeat of Germany. Hitler's right-wing, divisive, combative, aggressive approach, which fixates on blaming others for problems, is unfortunately making a comeback in the West. But I wanted to conclude the year with a more positive role model, to remind us about what we can positively aspire to as humans. What is at stake with our decisions, with our votes, with our actions, is huge. We can choose to continue to further our knowledge and understanding of the world and of each other, or we can retrench into ourselves, turn away from the bewildering chaotic uncertainty of the world and either ignore it, ignoring the world, or fall back on dogmatic beliefs and blaming others for the world's challenging predicament. So here it is, the final episode of the year, November the 6th, 1919, Gracious Destiny. There's been a quantum leap technologically in our age, but unless there's another quantum leap in human relations, unless we learn to live in a new way towards one another, there will be a catastrophe. Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein had been writing a letter to his mother when the postman rang. His poor old dear of a mother was dying, so Einstein had been writing to her more often than usual, to try and give her some small comfort or at least a welcome distraction from the pain. He'd been sitting there racking his brains, trying to think of what to write. He wasn't used to writing so frequently, and so he had used up all his news by the time of this letter, and that was when the doorbell rang for a second time. In front of Einstein was his postman, red-faced and bent over with one arm resting on a thigh. He looked up at Einstein as the door opened. 
Still haven't fixed that lift, the man said by way of an explanation of his current state. And they won't, Boris, not with the way things are. Maybe next year, replied Einstein. Well, no disrespect then, but I hope you don't get too much mail and telegrams this winter then. The wheezing man held out a telegram. It was from England. Einstein tore it open eagerly and read it quickly. I'm sorry to say, Boris, I think I might be receiving the odd letter or two shortly. Quite a few, in fact. Good day to you. With that, Einstein swiftly closed the door and door shut, savoured reading the news one more time. It was a telegram from London saying that the results of Dr. Arthur Eddington's epic photo expedition had confirmed that the deflection of starlight passing next to the sun bent by about 1.7 arc seconds, thus proving Einstein's theory of general relativity. Einstein wasn't surprised that the results bore out his theory. The theory was too perfect to have been wrong. But still, it was nice for the rest of the world to have the proof of it. Oh, it was much more than nice. He knew that. Einstein knew that now his theory would become big news the world over. The focus of the study of physics itself would shift throughout the world, and it would also change his world. He was not sure how, or whether he would like it, but that is what would happen. Einstein proceeded to pace around the flat restlessly, and then found himself in front of the kitchen table where he had been writing the letter to his mother. He sat back down and tried to resume his filial duty, reading over what he had written so far. Dearest mother, I hope it is warmer where you are than it is here. It's very much on the cold side for the time of year, and there is no prospect of heating this winter. Berlin is still turning itself upside down, and the upshot of this is that there is no fuel, so it is likely to be a cold few months. He reflected that it wasn't the cheeriest of letters. So below this he added, but I have some news to warm us. You know I told you about that English astronomer, Dr Arthur Eddington. I've never met the man, but he managed to get hold of my paper during the war, a mutual friend smuggled it through the Netherlands, and the fellow rather took it to heart, which led him to come up with this wonderful scheme, even though the war was raging at the point when he started planning it, three years ago I believe. His plan, I think I might have mentioned it, was to record photographic plates during the 29th of May 1919 solar eclipse to see if Newton's theory stands or if mine does. He sent one team off to the Amazon jungle and another that he headed himself was based on an equatorial African island in the middle of the Atlantic, this particular eclipse being more visible in the southern hemisphere. The solar eclipse lasted for only five minutes and they had to take as many photos as they could in that time. Three years in the planning, two months travelling, and two months travelling back, all for those five minutes. Makes one happy to be on the theoretical side. Once back in England, it has taken him these last two months to process the photos and do the maths. It turns out his results match my theory of relativity, thus proving it, which is rather pleasing. Rather pleasing? Einstein sat back in his chair, frustrated. What meaningful words could he say to his dying mother that would express how he felt right now? Or rather express how he should feel, because in himself he really didn't feel any different. He felt a quiet sense of satisfaction that others knew what he already knew to be the case. But that was it. His time of wild celebration, at least inside himself, had been 14 years previously. 
a celebration that had thankfully brought to an end four years of agitation, turmoil and uncertainty. Einstein's world had been turned upside down in December 1900 when he had read a copy of Professor Max Planck's address to the Berlin Physical Society and it had stayed turned upside down until he had come up with his special and in putative form his general theory of relativity. Planck had devised a brilliant equation that required the use of what Planck had described as a mathematical quirk to make his equation describing the curve of the radiation wavelength at every temperature work. This quirk soon came to be referred to as Planck's constant. And while the rest of the physics establishment seemed to be congratulating Planck on his equation, which did indeed work and was considered rather neat, Einstein was in freefall. Because this quirk ripped apart the entire beautiful harmony of the Newtonian classical physics. Einstein felt as if the ground had been pulled out from under him and there were no firm foundations to be seen anywhere. Towards the end of the 19th century, there had been various cracks emerging in the classical physics paradigm. And there had been various saving theorems to paper over these cracks. The physics community was intent on finding ways of clinging onto the theory that had been serving the world adequately for the past 300 years. Indeed, Planck's constant was intended to paper over a particular crack exposed by the experiment of Boltzmann, and instead it had smashed a great big hole into the harmony of the universe. At least this was crystal clear to Einstein's eyes. Einstein knew that the physical universe had to be harmonious. He knew this in his heart, he knew this every time he heard Mozart, he felt it every time he played Mozart. There was underlying harmony and beauty in the universe, and there had to be a physical theory that expressed this. Planck's constant pointed to something because it was true, and Einstein ran back and forth in his mind with it for four years until he found a new theory that could explain Planck's constant within the context of the physical universe. At that point, at the start of 1905, when it was clear to Einstein, his harmony was mostly restored, and that had been the time he had felt wild exultation. For then again, things were as they should be. Harmony was restored. His theory was both beautiful and simple, qualities that pointed to its truthfulness. And now, 14 years on, there was experimental proof of it. But for Einstein, it had been true for all of these past 14 years, and it was true today, and it would be true tomorrow. So this is why he had trouble being anything other than rather pleased by the news. Still, he knew that he must come up with an emotional response, one that the world would consider appropriate, because the world would soon be descending upon him. He lit his pipe and started circling the table. Tobacco, combined with movement, always lulled his brain into a new state. He thought back to 1905, when it had all come to him. He thought of his years in Prague, and he thought about the last years pacing around in this flat, grappling with fleshing out his theory. Pictures started forming. Pictures of him in the middle of the night, nights in Bern, nights in Prague, and here in Berlin, stuck, reaching for his violin, feeling the calming flow of notes and tell and tell I've got it Einstein said out loud and strode out into the hallway grabbing his overcoat on his way out of the front door he bundled himself into his coat as he skipped down the four flights of stairs pipe smoke trailing in his wake 
Not a minute after he'd got it, he was striding through the prematurely cold November air of central Berlin. An hour later he was back, package in hand, taking the apartment staircase steps two at a time. When he reached his landing, he saw that he had left his door wide open. It briefly flitted across his mind that this was probably not wise given the current turmoil enveloping Berlin, and then his mind turned back to his package. He unwrapped it on the kitchen table. Einstein had bought himself a new violin. Lena, he whispered reverently, for all his violins were Lena, and now she was Lena. With loving care, he took the instrument out of its case and struck up Mozart's violin sonata in E minor. It seemed fitting to celebrate unveiling part of the mystery of the universe by playing something so beautiful that it always seemed to Einstein that Mozart must have had his finger on the pulse of the infinite. Sometimes, as he played Mozart, he imagined he could hear the voice of creation tantalizingly on the outside edge of his audible range, an ancient echo traveling across vast stretches of cosmic time, whispering a hint to the meaning of existence. After a timeless time being a conduit for the brilliance of Mozart, Einstein put down the violin, a fine congratulatory gift for relativity being proved, and went back to his letter. He crossed out, which is rather pleasing, and instead wrote, so the intimate union between the beautiful, the true, and the real has been proved again. It is a gift from the gracious destiny that I've been allowed to experience this. Signing off with love, Alfred. Afterward, during World War I, there was a ban on any communication between the academics of the Allies and the academics of the Central Powers. This meant that in the rapidly changing world of war, Albert Einstein's 1916 paper, Relativity, the Special and General Theory, which if anything changed our world more than World War I, altering the very paradigm of our perception about our world and our universe, was seen by far fewer people than it would normally have been seen by. Luckily, one person who did get hold of Einstein's 1916 paper was the English physicist and astronomer Arthur Eddington. Eddington immediately understood that Einstein's theory was correct and wanted to prove it. Eddington was as confident of the veracity of Einstein's theory as Einstein himself. When one of Einstein's graduate students asked Einstein what he would have done if the results of the experiment should have shown his theory to be wrong, Einstein replied, then I would have been sorry for the dear Lord, for the theory is correct. Eddington showed similar confidence in his own intellectual prowess when a journalist asked, Dr. Eddington, I understand that you are one of the only three people on earth who really understand the theory of relativity. Eddington replied, there is myself and Dr. Einstein, but pray, who is the third? Eddington was a Quaker and a conscientious objector. At the age of 35 in 1916, he was still eligible for being drafted into the British Army, and it was only an intervention by the astronomer royal, Frank Dyson, that stopped him from going to prison. Instead, Dyson persuaded the Admiralty, then run by Winston Churchill, that Eddington would better serve his country by proving a revolutionary new theory of the universe. 
the fact that it would mean an English scientific team spending a considerable sum of money mounting a complex operation to prove the theory of a German scholar was, in the spirit prevailing during the war, very contentious. However, Dyson's perseverance and political connections led to the experiment being approved. Thankfully, by the time the solar eclipse of the 29th of May 1919 came around, the war had in fact finished. So the ships that set sail with the scientists aboard, one heading to the Amazon rainforest of northern Brazil, the other to the tropical equatorial island of Principe in the Atlantic off the coast of Africa, didn't have to run the gauntlet of German U-boats. The eclipse would last for only five minutes, from 3.13pm to 3.18pm. Because of faulty equipment and cloud cover, it took Eddington many weeks to sift out the reliable results. Once he had these, he was ecstatic and called it the best moment of my life. While Einstein unofficially was told about the results on the 22nd of September, when he did indeed go out and buy a new violin to celebrate changing the history of human thought, it wasn't until the 6th of November that the findings of the expedition were formally announced. In London, a special session of the Royal Society of Science was convened with one item only on the agenda, the results of the observation of the eclipse. Astronomer Royal, Frank Dyson, read out the results, concluding, After a careful study of the plates, I am prepared to say that there can be no doubt that they confirm Einstein's predictions in his generalised theory of relativity. J.J. Thompson, president of the society and discoverer of the electron, concluded without hyperbole when he stated, The result is one of the greatest achievements of human thought. Both Eddington and Einstein were profoundly against war. Both had deeply compassionate outlooks. Both believed in the beauty of the universe and that humans can aspire to be more truthful and more compassionate than their restrictive and jingoistic societies allowed them. They both condemned the excesses of British imperialism and exploitative capitalism as well as German militarism. A year after the conclusion of the most narrow-minded and pointless conflict in history that had unleashed senseless killing on an unprecedented scale, these two men, an English Quaker and a German Jew, allowed humanity to get closer to a true understanding of the world and were both as individuals examples of how brilliant humans can be. Smart, compassionate, tolerant, peace-loving and searchers for truth, knowledge and beauty. Thank you all for listening to The Year. I know that historical short stories is an unusual format for a podcast, but I had the stories and wanted to share them and thought this would be the best way of sharing them. My next podcast will be a more usual short discussion format, although I'm still debating what subject I will cover next. Over the past year, my wife Dorota and I have been writing and developing our new painting animation film, The Peasants, based on the Nobel Prize winning novel by Polish author Władysław Raymond. This has led me into reading up on Polish history and so I'm considering doing my next podcast on Polish history. I'm also working on a film set in Africa 100,000 years ago, 
So I'm also considering doing a podcast on paleoanthropology. As well as making the year, I've been consuming a lot of podcasts over the past year, and I'd like to share some of my favorites. If you want an exhaustively in-depth approach to history, there is nothing that comes close to Dan Carlin's hardcore histories. A lighter and more entertaining bite-sized approach is the podcast, You're Dead to Me. A straight talking and concise overview of what has been going on politically in the world in the Trump era can be found in Timothy Snyder Speaks. The best podcast on paleoanthropology I have found so far is Origin Stories from the Leakey Foundation, although unfortunately they don't publish often. Hopefully you'll find something among those to enjoy and I will be back sometime in 2020 with a new podcast. I will finish by thanking Mickey Wenzel who has been creating the artwork for and doing the editing of the podcast and Michael Yankowski from Noise Room who has been the sound editor and mixer for the show.